creeds and criticism meet. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick. And I'm Allison. And this is episode 21. We have done 21 episodes of these. There's that much Bible to talk about, is there? There is, and more. (laughs) So welcome back. It's been a while. We apologize. It's been one of those weird things about being a pastor where you discover free time is not a luxury you had at one time. So it's, it's fun. Yeah, but I mean... Let's just say that some of these are excuses. Um, it's a good excuse. I get to you know pull a pastor juke. That's he's good. been doing other podcasts. Actually, we haven't recorded the Synergist podcast for a while, but you should also listen to the Synergist podcast spelled the center way. Just, just <laughs> so you go. Yeah. By the way, if you if you guys hear some meowing, some in, incessant meowing, it's because we've got Barkley here, and he's really friendly, and he just speaks to me all the time. And he jumps up on the couch, so he might knock some stuff over in the in the very near future. So we've been actually working with him to get him to jump up on the couch. And now he's going him. to do it. Now he's going to do it, and it's going to distract both of us. And there will be a five minute clip of us just going, "Oh, he's so cute," and just petting him. I don't him. mind. No, this is true. He's adorable. So, it's just rewarding me for trapping cats. This is true. You're going to bring home now five more. And I'm actually okay with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, by the way, guys, um, one, one day I'm going to retire to a cat farm. I'm going to have my own <laughs> acres of land, and there's going to be cats on it. And I'm going to take care of them. It'll be non-profit. Am I going to be alive at this time? Maybe, maybe not. Lord, I hope not. It'll be to fill a hole in my heart. There you go. If I die, you can have your cat farm. If you don't die, then no, you don't get a cat well, farm. Well, I mean, but you'd like the cats too. I like cats, but I don't want to have everything smelling like cat. That's why you have staff, you know, around the clock. To How clean are we going to afford this? We're, we're like theology okay, nerds. Theology nerds don't make any money. Check out Cat House on the Kings. That is... Is the dream. You notice how she didn't answer the question how we're actually going to pay for all this? Donations. Donations. <laughs> yeah. hey, contribute, to our pa- contribute to our Patreon account so we can feed cats that otherwise would probably have yeah. happy homes somewhere else. Wait, what? No, yeah. that's that's the point. Roadmap. You, you have, no, you have the cat house on the kings so that people can come and adopt cats. That's why it exists. It doesn't so that she can just have cats. So we're farming cats out to people. No. Ah, all right, we'll get back to this another time. All right, so what are we doing today? Arguing, apparently, in front of all the children. Well, we will be discussing what we are going to be snacking. Snacking, yeah. <laughs> Nick and I had an argument about that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, two, we will be doing a book corner. Mm-hmm. And three, we'll be going over the Genesis content before the fall. So we'll do the second part next time. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do some responses. Um, five evidences of complementarian um, gender roles. Mm. Mm, yes. Good exegesis. Right yeah, there. I mean, it's really like their summary. Was it the Gospel Coalition? Yeah, Denny Burke at the Gospel yeah. Coalition. It's their, sum- it's their summary of um, these things, you know, indicate gender roles. It, you'll see, I think it's a lot more assertion than actual arguments being made. And there's a way to make 
actual solid arguments without having to get into all the nitty gritty of evidence. But I think they just do a lot of assertion and not really arguing. You'll see what we mean. Well, it's also worthwhile saying that complementarian readings of Genesis haven't really progressed since Ray Ortland's article, which is a very sad thing. Yeah, I agree. And so. um, we won't be going through all five because we're going to wait and do some of them the next time. Mm-hmm. So first, the snacking. Snacking. So I am not enjoying a beer. I am happily... Um, enjoy McConnell's Fine Ice Creams, Turkish Coffee. Yes. Delightful. Good for you. Mm-hmm. I am drinking Shaka Vesa, which is Stone's Mexican hot chocolate stout. Or rather, I can't remember if it's a porter or a stout, but it's dark and hoppy and got a bit of cinnamon and nutmeg in there on top of the coffee chocolate vibes. And it's it's pretty solid. It probably tastes a lot better. And... So it's kind of like diluted coffee? Actually, no. The coffee is quite strong. I'm actually kind of impressed. Stronger than my Turkish coffee? No, because then I'd be drinking coffee. So it's diluted. No, it has got other stuff in it that accentuates the coffee without underplaying it. Mm. If it was diluted coffee, it tastes like water. And it doesn't taste like water. <laughs> I wonder like... what Mike Bird would say about your coffee. Would he call it... Would he, would he use the same descriptors? Well, if y'all like, you know, Australian beer, Mike is a connoisseur of that sort of thing. So you should... Okay, Hester. go back into the episodes and Episode 20. listen to his psychotic rant on, well, actually, coffee and beer. Yep. <laughs> and he doesn't like either. Yeah, and I'm drinking a beer that has both in them. Out of solidarity to my Australian friend, Michael Bird, who loves both, despite his denials. But we have now gone five minutes. Yep. And so what are we doing now? And next it was just bitter because he doesn't like that I refer to this as the snacking because he doesn't view his beer drinking as snacking. If I if we eat on like on mic, it just sounds like we're being awfully work. combative today. Well, I you know I was at church today. I'm a pastor, so you know. Church it, makes you combative. Yes. That's yes. Terrible. I don't know. Actually, I, it actually makes me very tired and happy. But you know. Mm. So, book corner. What are you reading? What aren't I reading? Well, aside from Danny Burke's wonderful article. Actually, I just we read that. So, <laughs> so what are you reading? Um, well, I've actually been reading a lot on typology and figuration. Um, <sighs> quite you. Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually lately have been really enjoying my reading on icons, actually, and the Seventh Ecumenical Council. In particular, I really like the book "Images of the Divine" by um, Giacolis Ambrosios. I don't know if I said that right, but I really like that book, or I just finished it just now. And I don't know, I mean, good thing to, the Seventh Ecumenical Council is basically um, considered an ecumenical council by the East. Um, I don't think it's a real ecumenical council because it's not, it's arguably not really ecumenical. (laughs) I know that's kind of a weird way to put it, but... um, We We are ecumenical, says who? Just us. Well, okay, so... That aside, um, I actually very much um, think that um, there's some really good theology that's in there, um, even though we are Protestants and don't have the same exact understanding mm-hmm. um, as the Eastern Church does. Um, I think in many ways the arguments surrounding um, icons um, against and protecting, safeguarding their existence against the iconoclast is the nature of the it safeguards the nature of the incarnation and especially the um, two natures um, 
being distinct yet not separated. Um, and I won't get into why that is. I think maybe people want to know. Um, and it safeguards the goodness of matter um, and it's tied to the salvation of the cosmos. So anyway, um, you might actually hear a little bit about that creep in because I'll be doing a uh, conference soon um, titled The Incarnation the Iconoclast. And it will actually be about developing a theology of hope um, in the midst of abuse. Ooh, and where is this happening? Because I have no idea where this is happening. In Canada. In Canada. Where in Canada? Um, was it Wycliffe College? Wycliffe College. In what city? Uh, Toronto. My maple leaf. She gets to go to see the maple oh. leaves without me. Ugh, and the maple leaves suck right now. But, I mean, our defense is like the worst in the league. But we scored seven goals and won 76 in overtime today. So mm. it is Sunday afternoon. So. He's, he's also very pleased because he, um, I, he, I, mm. let's just say I saw the Kings come out and I was not impressed. Oh, yeah, the, op the opening ceremony of the L.A. Kings versus... It seemed like they were trying to compensate for something to And me, then I but... showed her the Vegas Golden Knights and how they did it with a palm and flamboyance and self-awareness, and it was wonderful, and now she is a hockey fan. Ah, uh, well, we wouldn't say that much. By my male headship, which I can assert, like Ray Ortland does, you are now a hockey fan. And you get to go to Toronto without me. I really wish I could go to Toronto and watch hockey. But you're going to the CATA conference... Yes. And all that sort of stuff. So if you guys want an alternative to the Evangelical Theological Society, CATA. Uh, no, it's not. Sorry, I was thinking Greek CATA. C-A-T-A. Canadian mm -hmm. American Theological Association. Yep. Richard Middleton, if that name sounds wonderful to you and you recognize it, he is highly involved and he's wonderful. So. Yeah. And what am I reading? I am reading multiple books on Christian perfection and entire sanctification. So I've been reading... Kenneth Grider's book, uh, little, his little monograph from 1980, as far as I can tell, 150 or so pages, which my book hopefully will be about as long as, uh, that was the last monograph on entire sanctification. And it is more, it's not particularly exegetical, it's more just kind of, here's some proof text that work, and here's all this sort of kind of theological reasoning why we get to this point, not that I'm opposed to theological reasoning, but... You know, I'd like to see a more robust exegetical case for for entire sanctification, and hopefully I provide that. So I've been reading through that and disagreeing with it and citing it, and that includes Romans commentaries and stuff like that, too, on top of that. So that is what I've been reading on top of dozens of commentaries. Yep. And Danny Burke's wonderful, compelling article in the Gospel Coalition. I'm not sassy or bitter at all like my beer that I'm drinking. Yeah, and just so you guys know, um, eventually, after we get through actually going through the text and giving you a... a basic rundown of our view um we will be going into complementarian sources in more detail mm -hmm. um and so you know that's coming i mean right now it's more about building a positive case yeah but yeah that's just you know some of you a little antsy for us to get into some of their stuff we will oh yeah um and of course um if you ever really really are just dying um for us to answer a very specific complementarian argument or a specific part of a complementarian text we most um, certainly will. If mm -hmm. you ask us the question in a very uh, succinct um, way, we will do that. If you can tweet it to us and it fits all within a tweet, we'll probably be very happy to answer it. Yeah, what we won't do is, I mean, there's, <laughs> we, we got some questions where it was more like a, why aren't you, you know, systematically going through all of these complementarian sources? And it's like, because we're building a positive case. That's what we're doing right now. 
Um, they were strangely silent when we when I asked them to give some specific questions ahead of time, and we'd be happy to go through it. Yeah, and don't forget too, uh, a podcast review of certain uh, very academic, very linguistically complex books and resources is not very fun to perform on a podcast. You need something yeah. a little more light. I mean, I don't relish the fact of going through uh, the new book by Andreas Kostenberger and Thomas Schreiner, you know, page by page to talk about it. And so I think I think we can swing it, honestly. Maybe eventually. We'll see. Maybe it'll get fun. We'll see. But just the idea of going through a specific resource, I'm like, eh, I'd rather go through a specific argument they make or like subordinationism, for example. Mm-hmm. The like having an entire episode on that, maybe we can get a Glenn Butner on. He just wrote a book against eternal subordinationism mm-hmm. with a Whitfenstock, actually. Really good book. But oh, yeah, anyway, anyway, all this to say, yes, we will answer specific um, targeted, even if they're highly technical questions, um, we will do our best for those if you send them to us. Um, and eventually we will be going through complementarian sources. Yep, and theologies and stuff like that. Yep. Um, and you don't have to be an egalitarian to send us questions, of course. That yeah. goes without saying. We, I've been having a really good conversation with a buddy of mine. Uh, I don't know if I can say his name or not. He might get in trouble. But he's a buddy of mine at a Southern Baptist seminary who've, who's been a wonderful conversation partner on this issue. So it's been a lot of fun. So. And a lot of people want to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. And basically, we won't say your name unless you tell us that we can mention your name. Yep. Um, that's the thing too. So, um, my, my buddy, when he listens to this, he'll know. So, but that's, that's to me is what matters. Yeah. So just, I guess maybe more clear, um, just tell us when you want to be anonymous and we won't say anything. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a libertarian. I like privacy. We'll share generalities, but we won't, you know, say, Hey, this person from this city. Yes. Yeah. Here is their social security number. Uh, go find and harass them because that's what we do these days. Yeah. All right. So with all of that out of the way, Allison, what do we do now? We are going to go through Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Okay. 2, 15 through 25 and 3, 1 through 6. Okay. Now, so a nice chunk of verses from Genesis. Sweet. I'm sure you would all love us to just read all the way through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But... Um, lucky for you, this we're not. A, this isn't a Presbyterian service. Yeah, and part of the issue here um, is that a lot of complementarians tend to think that, I think they read a lot into narr- the narrative that's mm-hmm. not there, and they don't actually um, demonstrate that this, um, they, they don't make a case from the narrative that something is the, um, supposed to be read a certain way. Right. It just kind of more assumes. So, Part of it is I wish I could just read through it and say, do you see this? Nope, not yet. Is it here? Nope. Do you see where um, Adam is given authority over Eve? No, not here. Is the word headship ever used in Genesis? Is the word role ever used in Genesis? What are the demarcations of, quote, gender roles in Genesis? You're really not actually told, but you will, of course, see that or not see that as we go through Genesis. Yeah, so the best we can do, I think, um, is to go through these sections, um, make an egalitarian, a basic egalitarian case for it, and then we'll go through some of the points that are um, raised in the Gospel Coalition. Yeah. Um, and I mean, because it's very, I, we hear these all the time anyway. And yeah. so that'll be that. And then we'll go, we'll do the rest afterwards. And again, if you think we really left out something that really needs to be covered, let us know. All right. So I will go ahead and read, and we're going to freestyle this one. Um, we won't go as back and forth and as structured as before. And we'll just see how it goes. All right. 
So I'll read um, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 first. And what translation are you using? Um, I prefer NASB, personally. Oh. I know. It's what I do. All right. <laughs> um, CAB is good too, but I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image. Yeah, see, I'm already regretting. Um, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and all over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, Ray Ortland loves to assert things in his article on... Later. Oh. Later. Fine. All right. Fine. All right. Okay, wait. It's the Ortland... Yeah, it, it, it's directly relevant. And oh, okay, it, go for This it. is something that people have brought up to me personally multiple times. All right, go for so, it. All right, uh, Ray Ortland says stuff all the time in his article in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which, having read the article multiple times, I can see why I jumped out of complementarianism very quickly. So, uh, here we go. Ray Ortland says, But God's naming of the race man whispers male headship. I did say man in that translation. Yes. Uh, of course, if... Only God's word were as explicit as Ortland wishes it whispered. Uh, we'd have a different case here. But the word for man that Ortland picks on is ha-adam. It's you know a perfectly generic term that refers to a human being or human beings, uh, according to BDB and Holiday and to uh, the two major uh, Hebrew lexicons. And we have a perfectly good word for male. It's zakar, a male as opposed to woman, which is defined by both of the same lexicons. So basically the idea that, oh, whisp the use of man whispers male headship or man means this is like, no, this is a generic and it's used throughout the narrative to refer to a human being. The maleness is implied, but it's not at the center of the narrative. And that is something we'll see throughout complementary. Well, and it's more implied in hindsight when gender distinction comes into play. It's yep. not actually there yet. So I would say the, wording is actually a lot more universal. I mean, we know it's the one that we've come to see as male mm -hmm. um, because it, there's only one figure there and we know right. a woman was taken out of him, but that's mm -hmm. kind of more in hindsight right now we have, there's a, there's a human in front. There's a human. Yeah. There. Genesis one tends to go very general. Here's how this all works in Genesis two. You get kind of Moses drilling down into it. Okay. Uh, man was made first. And it's like, okay, now we're getting more specific about it. Yeah, and you know what? Let me read this. Um, this is from Richard, um, Hess. Richard Hess, and it's in Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. Which is basically the entire issue of this debate, complementarity with or without hierarchy. Yeah. Um, so here's what um, – I'll read a little part of it. Um, the first clear – Clearly attested usage of Adam uh, to denote the personal name, Adam, occurs in Genesis 4.25. It should be pointed out that the Old Testament Hebrew has no common term for humanity other than Adam. Adam, yeah. One it, from the dirt. Yeah. The generic Adam was part of the West um, Semitic lexicon before Genesis 1-3. through 3. Okay, good to know. Hmm. It was revealed and written in the form in which it occurs. Therefore, it is somewhat inaccurate to suggest, suggest that there was a conscious divine decision to use a masculine term to describe the human race. No other term was available. There is no evidence that the writer of Genesis invented new words. It should also be, also be noted that Hebrew was only two, has only two genders, masculine and feminine. There is no neuter. And by the way, that's not true in the Greek. Yep. And so 
Um, you can actually, if you follow this mentality in some um, biblical passages in New Testament, you can also make bizarre cases um, going in an egalitarian direction. But we shouldn't do that because that's bad. Wisdom is feminine, therefore men don't have wisdom. Ding! Yeah, well, and, <laughs> Ding. <laughs> not I that. Yeah, that's I'm, not what I had in mind. I know, but I know. That's okay. Um, moreover, moreover um, the choice of gender for any noun is not predictable. And in any case, the evolution of a word from a common noun, humanity, in Genesis 1, to title, the man, in Genesis 2-3, to and finally, to a personal name, Adam, in Genesis 4-25, is not unique to Adam. It's, like, it's a um, linguistic phenomenon shared by many languages. Hmm. In short, the nature of revelation, Hebrew language, and vocabulary, the semantic range of Adam, and the common linguistic development of words all argue against the presumption that God's naming of the race, man, was for his male headship. So, Ortland is wrong as well throughout his entire And I'd like premise. to add, too, that Adama, let's put that, that feminine ending at the end, ah, is feminine. Yep. So Adam is named Adam in part because he is taken from the earth. Adama. Adama. The dirt one. Adam. Adama. Adama. And so it's one of those things where you get, when someone knows a little bit of Greek, they can do a lot of damage. And here, basically, it's, or not Greek, Hebrew, well, ancient, any ancient, any ancient language. Yeah. language. Yeah. And you see this sort of exegetical fallacy just kind of used throughout Ortland's thing. It's You have to wonder if someone critically kind of pulled him aside and went, hey, look, like, yes, I'm a complementarian, but you need to make a, a better argument than kind And of, we're no Hebrew experts. Let's put it that way. No. Um, we're relying on all sorts of other experts. I mean, we've both had Hebrews, mm -hmm. uh, Hebrew before, yep. so... But still, like, um, we're, let's just say an, an, a Hebrew expert would probably be critiquing our pronunciation all the time. Oh, and I'm fine with that. I still mispronounce Greek stuff. But I did ask John Golden Gay about uh, man mm. in this a long time ago. And he basically just kind of looked at me like, I gave him kind of Ray Ortland's argument, kind mm. of in a nutshell. And he kind of looked at me in a, well, kind of like a when a puppy looks at something yeah. weird, kind of look, head tilted, and just kind of looked at me and went, that person doesn't know Hebrew very well. And I was yeah. like, I was like, uh, not to be that guy, but okay. Yeah, and some of these, like... You remember from beginning Greek or Hebrew, and you just kind of, oh, why, why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. Why make these people go away? Yeah. But no, that anyway. So that was our first um, response. But in more positive um, sense, what we have here is a very clear, um, explicit. Yep. So we're not reading this like out of. Um, we're not connecting a bunch of dots or seeing anything implicit in here. And implicit does not mean non-existent, right. but. What is explicitly stated in this text is that both uh, men and women are made in the image of God. And this image um, in, see, seems to be indicating that their roles, the role that is spelled out for them both in the text as representatives of God, is to rule together. That is what it says. It mm -hmm. says both of them are made in God's image, and both of them are supposed to rule. Yep. God, in verse 28 from the Common English Bible, God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth, and master or subdue it. Take charge of the fish and of creation, basically. He doesn't say the this is the first use of any sort of master or rulership language, and he doesn't say, Adam, fill your wife and master the earth. Like any sort of like insane sort of thing we would expect an ancient or Eastern author to say, you know, get your wife pregnant and fulfill the earth. It's like, no, together be fruitful and multiply. You need both for this. And if Danny Burke and all these guys at the Gospel Coalition at Raylor want to talk about gender roles, the closest thing you get is right here. 
You need both to have babies and to subdue the earth. And really behind this is the need for image bearers. Yep. Um, and again, I think in part um, too, and, and this is um, getting into some more theological territory and especially considering the whole canon. Yep. Um, part of our calling um, to spread the gospel message is to help um, people um, grow into the likeness of Christ. Because yep. as image bearers... Uh, our, our purpose um, as humans, what makes us full, uh, really human, is to be image bearers. Yep. And we fulfill our vocation as image bearers when we are more like Christ or more like God. Right. Um, and so that's another sense in which we fill the earth. But in, the, in this case, um, there's only the two of them. Yep. And the creation um, needs image bearers, people yeah. that are going to represent God's care of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a... And again, our notions of what it means to rule and to lead are very messed up um, yeah. nowadays. And there's a lot of misuse and abuse of power. Um, but again, like what um, what the text, I think, is wanting us to do is to really be able to take care of the earth and the animals and the plants and everything that God has made, showing the same amount of care that God has extended to us into the earth. Yeah, and throughout you have these sort of parallelisms. Uh, evening and morning, first day, male and female, image of God. And you'll notice that Moses doesn't actually say he made Adam in the image of God. That was something Augustine loved to talk about as he got to Paul. Only man or male is made in the image of God and all these sorts of things. And what you said right now, basically, or what Anyone who's just reading this text without going, well, I have to shoehorn this into my complementarian reading, is what Danny Burke responds with this as saying, quote, according to this view, that is the egalitarian view, or I would say just the clear reading of scripture, there's no evidence of male and female roles in Genesis 1 to 2, by which he means gender roles defined by ontological hierarchy established in 1950s America. And it's one of those things where it's like this sort of tendentious statement like, I'm sorry, anyone who's willing to just argue with the text and lead where the text is, or go where the text is, like, kind of dragging them, wouldn't say these sorts of things. Like, this sort of totalizing pseudo-exegesis, there's no evidence of male or female roles in Genesis. Like, no, Genesis 1 tells us in the egalitarian context of both male and female being made in God's image, and together they are fruit, they are fruitful or they're fertile, and they multiply, and together they fill the earth, and they master it, and they take charge of creation together. Their roles may be different in terms of who is pregnant and who's not, but Genesis 1 doesn't tell us, oh, the man is, as head does this. The woman as female does this. It doesn't do that. It sees them as a unit together, doing yeah. things that God has commanded them both to do equally without sort of, well, she stays at home in the kitchen and Adam goes out and beats the land and gets the fruit from it or kills the, kills, or kills the lion. <laughs> I love goes, your version here. <laughs> or kills the lion or Stephen Crowder once said, he puts his feet up and she helps him put his feet up. You know, this sort I of, keep thinking of Disney's Gaston. Yeah. I, I just can't like get the image out of my head. Whenever he said that, I was like, I'm getting Disney in here. Well, it should be because this, this sort he of, puts his feet up. <laughs> this sort of pseudo exegesis yeah. basically is like, you have to have Gaston in mind as your exegetical representative. If you want to talk about headship, this looks like Gaston. And it's just like, if we just read the text and take, and we don't come to it with like 1950 que 1950s questions about who's in charge and who submits, you just read the text and you go, oh, together they're doing something as a united front. Yeah. And you know what? Even read benevolent um, hierarchy here, mm -hmm. um, where you have this sort of umbrella, you know, God, you've got the man and the woman and the child. I don't know where the Let's, slaves are in that, but yeah, you know, well, okay. Blah, blah, blah. We're talking, we're I talking, know, 
U.S. household today, um, except for the ones that we don't mention with human trafficking. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, <laughs> that got dark. Um, so, all that to say, let's just, even if we assume um, maybe benevolence here, it doesn't say that here. Yep. Like, there, there is no hierarchically defined roles spelled out here. Um, leadership rule is given to both of them. So both of them are tasked to um, rule over the earth as representatives of God together. That's, yep. that's just what it says. Um, yeah. And if you don't have, I, I would say that maybe ask the question, does um, creating a hierarchy where the Bible does not, does that actually perhaps undermine um, the Imago Dei, the image yeah. of God in women? Yeah. Does that actually undermine it? When you try to say, if they were if they were created to lead and to rule the earth alongside you, mm-hmm. um, limiting that, does that actually undermine the image of God in yeah. them? And are you, yeah, so it gets into interesting territory, um, because sometimes I think people say, well, just to be safe, we're going to go with gender hierarchy, because we we, we don't want to accidentally let women lead if they're not supposed to. Well, you guess what? You've got something, you have another problem on your hands if the other is true. Yeah. God saw everything he had made in verse 31, and it was supremely good. Male and female, together, without any whisper or whiff or sniff of male headship, whatever you define that as, benevolent or patriarchal or whatever, there's nothing here. And the people that say it is are looking for it. I'm sorry, reading this text for the first time in Ron Pierce's class, who's an egalitarian, but I was complimentarian, he basically told us, read Genesis 1, think nothing of this debate and see what it says. And I came out going like, there's not a whiff or sniff of this this sort of male domination or male headship, whatever you want to say. And I just kind of went, yeah, if Genesis teaches egalitarianism, then the rest of scripture has to reflect it. Well, yeah, and that's true. And um, a lot of, actually, there's there's quite a few, um, sometimes complementarians will say, actually, yeah, I don't see any gender hierarchy in Genesis either. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the biblical interpretation of First Timothy. Yep. Um, and if you take, you know, a canonical reading, then you have that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not against canonical readings, but and we've already gone through First Timothy, so you can skip over to there if you have questions regarding that. Um, but yeah, it goes both ways, um, too. Um, yeah. Again, um, Genesis, I think, isn't just doesn't just have the absence of male hierarchy. Um, it actually seems to teach egalitarianism. So I, th- yeah. I think we should go on. So so far, explicitly, we have men and women are called to lead and as not image the, and not the additional assumed principle of so, some sort of nebulous male yep. headship layered over the top of it like really bad icing. Yep. All right. So 2:15 through 25. All right. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, "From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. We'll get to that. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not shamed. All right. Okay. So there's a couple of things um, I think we should address. Um, and some of it we might have to actually try to cover later. And so maybe I'll just drop this and leave you guys hanging till the next time. But some people will try to gravitate towards, um, see, God told the man not to eat of the tree. Ooh. Ooh. You got yeah. me. And I mean, narrative placement, um, it makes sense that because it comes after he formed the man um, and talks about the trees before that. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, in speaking of the formation of man and the trees, that there would be that command there, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, the text does not indicate that there's a, rep I'll, I'll just say, the text doesn't indicate that there's a repeated command to the woman. But she seems to know a bit later, and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle that later. Um, and so, again, I think, well, first of all, I think that just because the text um, says says X, but not Y, that you infer that, you know, it Y just doesn't exist, and right. only X exists. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I don't find that particularly problematic. You really have to read into this that there's a gender hierarchy. Yeah. Um, and that's quite a stretch, I think. Um, you'd need a lot more textual evidence for that, um, which I don't see. And coming right after, um, you have um, everything highlighting or going around the man's loneliness. So you've got creation of man, um, trees, don't eat of the tree, okay. And then you've got the man, but oh no, he's by himself, kind of a thing. Yeah, and... You know, the Lord God, you know, he settled He settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm and cultivate. So Adam's doing work. You know, God just didn't let him get all lazy and stuff like that. And all these sorts of things, you know, just keeps talking about all this. And then 15 talks about, took the human took the human or the man and settled him in the garden to take care of it. Uh, don't eat from this. Don't do this. And so he formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and basically recreates. Here you go. Name these things. For well, the and I was just realizing, too, um, earlier it did say that God gave him... Um, that gave him, uh, I guess, rule over, gave them both rule over the earth. Yeah. And so perhaps this command is also giving a limiting factor. Yeah. Um, so yes, they're supposed to rule the earth. Um, and here, I'll go even to back to 129. Um, then God said, behold, I have given you every, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's interesting. So this is given to both of them, I guess. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. That is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Hmm. So there we go. Um, and again, these are so. Here's what's tricky too. Um, chapter one and chapter two are not necessarily obviously purely sequential because um, it talks about God making humanity in His image. Yep. Um, and. So you've kind of got a, a shorter version of the creation of humanity that just names them both as the image bearers and say, here, I've given you all the tree, mm -hmm. every tree and every human and every animal. 
Um, and it's good. And then number two goes into more detail. Yep. So, I don't know. I mean, you could almost make a case that um, they were both instructed about trees and such. Yeah. Um, but, again, the text is making it clear here that even though God said he gave every tree for eating, that there's a limiting factor here on this tree. Yep. Which is another interesting question. Yeah. And um, one of the Eastern interpretations is that the tree of knowledge, again, is not a, quote, bad tree because everything in the garden is good, but that they were going to be able to take of this tree one day, um, just not at the time. Yep. So, for instance, if they had obeyed God, that perhaps they would have been able to lawfully partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and have wisdom with God except and not um, without apart from God. But anyway... Yeah. Um, all that to say, um, that early part, I think, um, it reads, you have to read into the text to say, number one, only the man, we know for sure only the man was ever told this command and not the woman. Um, and even if that being the case, that, that indicates this, um, very interesting male hierarchical construction that's supposed to go on to every... Um, individual, even though we have lots of explicit statements in the text saying otherwise. Yeah. And then you get the language that a lot of people love. I'll make him a helper. And that gets repeated in verses eight or mm. it starts at 18 and 20. Um, and this, of course, as anyone who knows Hebrew knows and can pick up a lexicon, this sort of helper language is often applied to God or other people. Azer. in Yeah. Azer often applied to uh, people in positions of authority. And so it's one of those things where the term itself, and Danny Burke even flat out concedes this, doesn't infer or imply subordination or underness or submission or anything like that. Of course, then he tries to qualify it by saying, oh, it's all contextual. It's like, well, no kidding, Sherlock. Well, we'll get, I think we'll get there. Um, yeah. We'll get there. Um, so helper does not denote an assistant role. No. In short, for now. Um, I would say a better um, translation would be um, maybe a, I mean, some people say a strong help to try to indicate the military connotation of it. Mm -hmm. Um, what is, what, um, what translations do you have, Nick? Uh, I have a perfect help or helper perfect. And so, which indicates complementarity, but I mean, there's also, um, I've seen a strength corresponding is good because, um, along with that helper is also a, a term used for correspondence. Yep. Or complementarity. Yep. And again, not in a very narrowly defined way um, that, quote, complementarians use to try to insert gender hierarchy. But um, it's basically, I guess you could say in a sense, you've got a face-to-face -face relationship. Yep. Um, you don't have one towering over the other. Um, you've got them looking at each other face-to-face. -face. There's genuine correspondence and genuine complementarity. Yeah. There is not a hierarchical notion to the term that has to be in, 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 uh, read into the text. And what I think mitigates this quite a bit is the language of, uh, and this is something that gets missed a lot in this debate, is rib. You know, the idea of rib being taken from Adam's side when he falls into sleep. The term rib doesn't actually mean rib. And if it does mean rib, it's the only time it actually, this is the only place it actually means it. Because elsewhere throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible it refers to the side of a holy mountain, the side of the, a Solomonic temple, and which indicates here that human beings by ontological design are sacred architecture, that God has taken the time to make us in his image, which of course that sacredness comes from the image of God. And so you have here, woman is not created from man's head nor his feet, but from his side. And the sense in which is a correspondence, a sideness, 
like you have mil two military, you know, people standing down an army together side by side, locked in arm. And so it's one of those things where in or it, the, the idea, I hate the idea of, oh, my rib, my rib. It's like, no, it's my side. Someone's taken from my side to indicate correspondence and closeness. Yeah, um, basically you have the woman um, created out of a sacred um, part of the man to mm -hmm. show that there is, she she isn't this other being that was made. So there's no men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Yep. They are, they are of the same stuff. Yep. Um, and again, I think we get lost because in English the term helper um, sounds like an assistant role. Yeah, and sounds like a secretary. So he makes tea. Helper is a word choice that the some of these translators have chosen. Um, does it actually best reflect the language? No, yeah. it doesn't. Um, because we're getting the wrong impression when mm -hmm. we read that. We go, oh, assistant, when that's not the term's meaning. Yep. Um, and you can even think of the song, um, "Here I raise my um, Ebenezer." Yep. Here, here <laughs> by thy help I come. I think it's the phrasing. Um, that's the notion of you need help. And so you are calling the helper, the rescuer, the rescuer, um, the strength um, to come and save you. And in the context of this text, um, what we have is the text is um, set up to surround um, them and highlight that the man is not able to fulfill his vocational calling um, to, to rule the earth um, and to care for it as God's image bearer without a strength corresponding to him. He yep. needs help. Um, and I think um, I would love to actually read a quote for you. Um, and I guess what this gets before I read it, um, I think... So the earth has, the world has been ordered in such a way that gender hierarchy or men rule has not worked out so well for women or for other men. Um, if you think about it, um, in places that have more male rule, we don't have more protection for women. We don't have more human rights. We don't have... Um, more econo um, economically thriving countries. Um, that's just not what happens. We would think that the reverse would happen, that yep. if, if it was God's design for men to be the rulers over women, um, even in a benevolent way, that we would automatically see that um, men and women were flourishing more together. And that's just not the picture that we get. Um, instead, um, Secretary, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon sums this up well. Countries with more equality have better economic growth. Companies with more women leaders perform better. Peace agreements that include women are more durable. The evidence is clear. Equality for women means progress for all. Mm -hmm. And would it surprise us that when God told um, us that man and woman were both made in the image of God and are both supposed to rule, and we try to uh, bolster the leadership of one gender, no matter who it is, over another, that suddenly not everyone thrives. Yep. Should that surprise us? It's like a car with one with like two wheels. No, you kind of need all four wheels to kind of get where you need to go. 
And and I think that's something too. Adam really gets this, and this is something that I feel has been co-opted a lot. Mm. And it really bothers me. This one finally, or at last, is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She's a correspondence to him. She is made. She is different from him, yet she is so like him that he recognizes himself in what she offers, and he glories in he, it. He takes delight in this, and not only that, this idea of taking delight in a different person but yet re maintaining the sacral architecture of that person's body is kind of reflected, I think, specifically later in 1 Corinthians 7, where you have the talk of uh, neither having authority over their own body, but something they yield to one another, and they don't deprive one another. And so here he's recognizing in her enfleshment as her, as her presence here indicates, she'll be called a woman because from a man she was taken, ish, isha, the idea being that as female, she fulfills something he cannot and by nature, too, that, of course, implies there are things he can do that she cannot. And there's that genuine complementarity of And that's never spelled out, by the way. Yeah. There's a genuine giftedness here throughout the entire narrative of these two together are what represent the image of God or represent a sacredness or a sacralness that God has created. And to insert some primitive or patriarchal notion of male headship here destroys this narrative because then Moses would have to be saying something entirely different in an entirely different way in order for it to make sense. And Moses doesn't say that here. Moses, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she is from me and yet like me, but different than me. We are here together as one. And here's an interesting way that the text puts this. And let me just say that in a lot of cultures, um, you have the notion that a woman leaves her household and joins the man's household and takes care of his parents, um, stuff like that. Yep. Um, or I would say maybe less formally now in our country, um, even in terms of some of our marriage rights, um, you have the woman's hand being taken from the um, father and given to the husband. Or the wife taking the husband's name. Yeah, and I mean, these aren't, again, like, um, we had some of these traditions in our wedding. Where, I know we're not trying to say, like, you know, get rid of it all, you know what I mean? Burn and, it all down! And frankly, even in a lot of more um, complementarian-leading ceremonies, I've noticed that all of a sudden, um, and again, it's it's a more recent time, where the, um, you know, our, it, when the um, father is called out, you know, are you giving your daughter away, he says, we are. He automatically starts including his wife into it. And mm -hmm. again, I tend to think traditions will change um, as our um, thought world changes. And mm -hmm. so already we're seeing um, changes to the ceremony being made in our own context. But anyway, all that to say that a lot of these like roots in our own traditions that are still around are because we had this notion of um, a, a daughter is being passed from her father's household to a hus to her husband's household. When interestingly, um, and again, um, I think the context of Genesis and the context of a lot of Near Eastern cultures is a patriarchal context. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't automatically mean we read patriarchy into the commands of Genesis as though um, because we see some of these in the backdrop that suddenly the backdrop mean, you know indicates the meaning of the text, it can help us discern, but it doesn't decide the meaning. So anyway, with all that said, after it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my pl flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mo his mother 
and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I know um, in a lot of cultures, especially with um, more patriarchal leanings, it's it's more protection for the woman um, to be more close to her family or her Mm -hmm. household um, rather than to be separated out and go into uh, a um, male-dominated patriarchal context. Um, So it's kind of an interesting um, setup. And I don't know entirely um, what the tradition is around that, but um, it's interesting that the text is saying that he leaves to join her. Yep. And uh, they together become one flesh. So their body becomes one another's. There's mutuality involved in it. Um, and there's also the sense in which they together leave and begin yes. the process anew, but it has to be done together without, and there, again, he could say, and he will lead his wife into the, into God's grace or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. No. And which, you know, he could have very well said, but he doesn't. He says, they were not embarrassed. They, and they, they, the, and all these sorts of things. And you just kind of go, okay, look, in order for complementarianism to be true, you need to start inserting phrases and concepts into this that aren't there. And it's like Moses very easily could have said all of these sorts of patriarchal things. He could have said what Danny Burke or Ray Ortland say. I wouldn't put it past him. You know, patriarchal context, you, you tend to, that's the air you breathe. But the fact that he doesn't, he goes through pains to talk about sacred architecture, respect for her, uh, image of God, together they rule, together, yeah. together, together. And I just kind of go, okay, hold up. If I have to assume literally the entire paradigm of complementarianism, and I still don't see this taught in the text, you've done something wrong here exegetically. Yeah. I would love to know more of the background, though, for verse 24, um, in terms of what, yeah, what's maybe a, even a tradition behind that. So Wouldn't surprise me. If anyone knows, send a book our way. There we go. Um, so, okay, so Genesis 3, 1 through 6 now. Ooh. All right, maybe 1 through 7. Why not? No, 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 we'll go 1 through 6. No, 1 through 6, You get yeah. 7 later. Yeah. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than, than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Mm -mm. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her or who was with her, and he ate. Ooh. The plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun. And, and I want to I read Ray Ortland's statement on this, because I think it's good to see who's reading into the text and who's reading the text. He says, The text of Genesis 3.6 does not say, She took some and ate it. Her husband, who was with her, also took some and ate it. And, of course, you kind of sit here and go, that is such a blithe distinction that's not worth anything. I don't know why you're making this in a purportedly academic book. And then he keeps going by saying this sort of stuff. Eve, usur- In this text, Eve usurped Adam's headship and led the way into sin. And Adam, who it seems had stood by passively. No, it actually, he did stand there. doesn't say he was passive. It just means he stood there or yeah. he was with her. Allowing the deception to progress without decisive intervention. Uh, they both should have, you know. Was it passivity? Um, I mean, First Timothy does say that. 
Eve was the one that was deceived. Yep. Um, but here's, I mean, here's an, here's a, here's a possible implication. Um, Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled against God with a high hand. Yep. Ouch. Yep. Adam and continuing Ortland's quote, Adam for his part abandoned his post as head. Eve was deceived. Adam forsook his responsibility. And you read the text and you go, where in the bad word is all of this? I'll tell you. It was when it said that humanity was supposed to rule and subdue the earth together, imaging yep. God. And they both did not image God. They wanted wisdom apart from God. And they both decided not to do what God wanted to do. This but is, then there were two of them. It wasn't just like one yep. um, abandoning his responsibility. They both did. And it's just amazing. Uh, there's no mention of he throughout Genesis one to three. You have three chapters, Moses, to make Ray Ortland's point for him. There's no mention of headship, usurpation, passivity, abandonment of so-called headship, or forsaking responsibility. This is an exegetical tradition built on sawdust. Like you look at this and you're like, look, he was with her and he ate it. He was active too. He's not passive. He he involved himself in this. He probably and he was there. He listened and he did. It doesn't matter. Oh, she took the fruit. It's like, who cares? That's not the point the text makes. The fact that it emphasizes he was there with her just kind of, and like, and I've listened to this. I'm like, one, reading this chapter again is the reason I love complementarianism. And I'm just kind of sitting there going like, you're inferring whispers that only the exegetically desperate want to hear. Like there's just to pin this all on Adam is just insane. All right. So, but in terms of a positive um, case or more positive reading, like what's going on here? Um, so you've got set up already that, you know, they're supposed to represent God and lead together. Um, they were both, um, so in a summary fashion told that they had all the, um, trees for food, um, and all the, and rule over the, um, fish and uh, animals. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically they're leaders of the earth that are going to basically image God. Yep. But they, but the woman seems to understand here, um, like Adam, like it said that it got repeated to the um, the man earlier. She seems to equally understand that, yeah, they have, they can actually eat right now from all the trees, just not the one at the center of the garden, um, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but then, what seems to be kind of um, the turning point um, for her is. Um, the serpent um, gives a different interpretation of the tree. So he doesn't deny that, you know, it's the tree of, you know, wisdom, basically the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. um, he just says, you're not going to die. God says you're going to die. You're not going to die. Um, and questions what God actually intends here. Hmm. Just kind of, God knows that you're going to be essentially rivaling him, I think is what it's indicating. Yeah. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God knowing good and evil. Um, and so it's interesting that, in a sense, by breaking the command here, they're trying to rival God. Yeah. In a sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's kind of curious because, um, in terms of being image bearers, in a sense, they're supposed to want. You would think they would want this wisdom, but again, they're trying to do it in a way that rivals God rather than joins with Him. Yeah, and who knows? The text is, I think, fairly cryptic, but you have the issue of. What would happen had they gotten to the point or what would have taken them to get to the point where God would say, now you can eat from the yeah. tree. And of course you have questions of mortality or immortality being involved here in the subtext and the mm -hmm. ideas. But the fact that, and I think this is interesting, uh, and they both saw clearly and knew they were naked. 
And Megan's seven, later, yeah, but yeah. Verse seven, but or even then, um, she saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food. It doesn't say she was more easily deceived or that she was dumb or she was wanting wanting to be deceived. She was just deceived. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't go further and say women by nature are this. That has to be inferred from other texts and. Frankly, just, anyway, I'm going to stop because I'm getting too sassy. But right and the, the key here at the end, though, yep. um, and I remember cause when I was younger, um, I was a very strange child because I, I read large portions of scripture, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it would be time for Sunday school, I would know obscure parts. Um, and so I actually, I think, remember interrupting teacher um, who said that um, Eve is responsible for the fall and just saying it in an offhanded way, not thinking too deeply about it and I said but it says here and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate you know it says that he was there with her so yep. there's this whole exchange being portrayed between the woman and the serpent and she sees it's desirable and she takes the fruit and then she gives it to her husband and it says that he was there with her yeah so he was there. Um, let's put it that way. So they did sin together. Um, there's no trickery that happens here that's indicated other than from the serpent. Yeah. Um, the most intelligent or crafty. Yep. Yeah. Of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Why, God, did you have to make the serpent? I mean, in a sense, you have them both um, buying into the idea that they could have wisdom apart from God. Um, the woman seems to be, like, fooled by the... The serpent's soul spiel. Yep. Um, it just says Adam takes it and eats it. He, he's next. He's like, well, you know, let's do it. Well, there's another. So. There's another interesting question that that comes up, and we can only we don't have to talk about it much, but it's just yeah. something else. And the God said, don't or God said, don't eat from it and, and don't touch it. Uh, Eve says, uh, or you will die. How does she know what death is? And of course, the snake saying, you won't die. God knows, you know, da 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 da. da. And you're just kind of like. Wait, how do, how do they know? Yeah, how do they know what is death? Yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, they're partaking, um, supposedly, and I mean, some church fathers say they haven't partaken of the tree of life yet, but mm -hmm. um, let's let's say that they are. Um, they're partaking of a tree of life. So it's not just a, um, you're magically um, alive forever. Um, it's this continual, like, dependence on the tree of life. Participation. Um, continual participation in the divine life mm -hmm. um, that animates them. And yep. so... That's the other part of it, too. Um, you know, do they think that they can have divine life apart from God? Yep. Do they think they could really continue their that in that sense? Knowing yeah. good and evil with, we might say, you wouldn't say immortal, but immortable. So the ability to be kept alive forever and ever, not the fact that this is some sort of ontic reality. The fact that they have the ability to keep living on, but knowing good and evil and therefore implying being able to do good and evil, as they, of course, continually do so once they're out of the garden and humanity just spirals into, you know, insanity. And so you can see why God just kind of went, all right, well, no more tree of life for you, you know, and kind of kicks him out. <laughs> it's kind of like a virus almost. Yeah. And there's kind of a, a sense in which, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so I'm looking for it. I actually think Romans 7 um, actually portrays um, what happened here. Um in, in the case of um, you've got a singular command, don't eat of the tree. Yeah. Do we want to tell them now or do we want to go through next episode nope. so they have to listen to it? I'll tell them now. Okay, fine. There's enough for next time. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say, um, to do, what shall we say? The law sinned, may it never be. Yada, yada, yada. Okay, here we go. 
Um, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Don't take of the tree. But sin, taking op opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And then I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Oh, interesting. And Adam is the closest reference. So it's interesting that he kind of summarizes the two. What? Yeah. Adam was deceived? No, I thought Eve was deceived. Yeah, yeah so that like... gets into, I think he conflates, Paul conflates the two um, very often. But any, anyway, um, all that to say, um, I think a good one way if we use, you know, kind of more of a canonical approach to read this is... Um, the, the command, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, the intention perhaps was in terms of, again, if we look at this whole story in terms of, and even um, the destiny of humanity to be in terms of not just not sinning, but also grow, simultaneously growth in, in Christ, growth mm -hmm. in the Lord. Yeah. Um, and again, um, understanding Christ as the template of creation and humanity itself. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that gets into other incarnational um theology and Christology, but all this to say, um, perhaps, um, the singular, the singular commandment was given to help them grow. And as they grow in obedience to God, um, they're able to, and, you know, are simultaneously take partaking of the life of God. Um, they grow to a point where they could perhaps have taken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in a sense, um, they're able to do that. Not that God was setting them up to fail, like, haha, I've, don't eat of this tree. Wink, wink, wink. I know you will. Yeah, it's like dangling a, a mouse in front of a cat. Don't eat the mouse, kitty. But we all know the cat's hardwired to do it. So it's like, that doesn't work. But the thing is, they, they only know of good. There's only a good creation. And mm -hmm. now they're posed with one option. One option where it's not God. So everything else is good, good, good. But suddenly they can choose. Do I eat of this tree? Like, um, do, I, do I not eat of the tree as God said? Or do I do it and disobey God? They have one option now. And, you know, it's supposed to be life-giving. Um, can They can decide not to do it, but they decide um, to go for it anyway. And that results in death um, and also kind of producing all the other options. So now they have knowledge of good and evil um, times infinity. Now they know all the possibilities of mm -hmm. the horrible things that could happen that they could do. Um, and something's horribly wrong with them at the same time. Not only do they have knowledge of all the possibilities, they also have now the sin and rebellion against God and this propensity to do those bad things and not just the good. The decontextualized desire to do them and all that entails. And so in summation, we've got, you know, all this sort of, you know, complementarian assertions and presumptions of the text, you know, stuff about male headship and Adam doing this or Adam doing that when none of it's actually stated. The egalitarian reading is remarkably simple. The text seems to say and teach what the text seems to say and teach. Both bear the image of God together as a unit. Uh, both are given dominion over the earth and are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. 
which presumes roles, and that's about as close as you get to actual definition of roles according to the complementarian scheme, which is remarkably narrow, but still, you know, if you want to grant something, there you go. Just means they have the same role, the different role together that's not predicated on hierarchy. Then you have Adam being created first in the more specific creation account in chapter two. He is made, and he basically realizes this animal's not for me because I can't do much with this animal. And then God basically says, fine, no problem, go to sleep. And Adam goes to sleep. He takes a piece of Adam's side, makes Eve, sacred architecture, meets sacred architecture. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This person is corresponding to me. This person is different from me, but this person is one with me. And so there's no notion of hierarchy. There's no notion of subordination and so on and so forth. And then you keep going on in chapter three, and then you get the realization that both have been essentially deceived, and then that's bringing us all up to date. All right, and so now we're going to go ahead and go look at that Gospel Coalition article. Um, the title, if you want to find it, is Five Evidence of Complementarian Gender Roles in Genesis 1 through 2, and it's by Denny Burke. Um, it was written back in 2014. We alluded to it earlier and. Oh, that's yeah, and so we won't be going through all five. Um, some of them we'll save for next time. Um, but I will read parts of it. Um, so in the they basically summarize what they think is the egalitarian position and then pose the question, um, is the egalitarian reading really true? Is that what Genesis teaches? So, and here they go. A closer look reveals the egalitarian reading of the text is quite misleading. Before sin enters the world, Genesis 1 through 2, presents man and woman as equal in their essence as divine image bearers, but unequal in their social roles. The first man, Adam, acts as the leader in the first marriage, and Eve is called to follow his leadership. Okay, God's appointment of Adam as leader comes out in at least five ways in Genesis. So let me just reiterate, here's, here's what's being directly claimed here, um, that the egalitarian reading is misleading. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that they'll quite go through that, but that's all right. You know, they can drop something here and there. Um, but then here it says the first man, Adam acts as the leader in the first marriage. So it's that they just told us that this, um, this case they're going to make is going to show that even though they're equal in essence, they're going, the text is going to indicate, um, unequal social roles. Okay. So did we see any of that there? No, there was no indication that there's unequal social roles. Of course, the, the language of social role is misleading, too, yeah. if we're going to be honest. Well, and here's the thing, too. Um, if it's a social role that's, you know, based off of maleness or femaleness, then that gets into ontology. And how is marriage social, essence. too? Marriage and social, that doesn't make any sense either. Anyway, um, the first man, Adam, acts as the leader in the first marriage. Okay, so we would expect to see that the first man, Adam, acts as the leader in the first marriage. That's the case that they're going to build. And that the text says that Eve is called to follow in his leadership. Okay. Called to follow. Okay. So and I... that this is going to come out in their five points. So look, look for that. It's going to spell out, the text is going to spell out for us that Adam is supposed to be the, mar the marriage leader and that Eve is called to follow in his leadership. All right. So let's, let's, let's go into it. So number one. The order of creation. I'll read it. First, God creates Adam and Adam before Eve. In the modern world in which egalitarian notions of humanity dominate, the order of creation would seem to make little difference for social roles. But that wouldn't have been the case for the original readers of Genesis, for whom primogenitor was a common feature of the family life. 
firstborn would often have special authority over those born after him. And Adam and Eve's relationship is similar. God forms Adam first and then Eve. Thus, Adam is given the position of authority. As Kenneth Matthews observes, the priority of the man's creation is important for recognizing leadership, followership, in the gar- uh, followership, followership. Okay, in the garden. Certainly, by the time of the first century, readers of the Old and New Testaments would have been deeply familiar with primogenitors. So much so that Paul grounds his views of gender roles and church leadership in the order of Adam and Eve's creation, where Adam was formed first and then Eve. So he appeals to First Timothy two thirteen and First Corinthians eight through nine. Paul views Adam's prior creation as significant for establishing Adam's leadership, and Paul's interpretation of Genesis is binding and authoritative. God made Adam first, thereby establishing him as leader of the pair. So, already very interesting. Um, So, the two cases that can be summarized is, number one, um, essentially Near Eastern culture is patriarchal and views firstborn son as um, leader of the clan. Hence, Genesis talks about Adam being created first. Therefore, um, that automatically makes him, in the ancient reader's mindset, um, the leader. And then number two, um, well, Paul says, you know, the man's leader. Therefore, and, and that's how he reads Genesis. Therefore, that's how, that's what Genesis says. So right. th- those are essentially the two Assertions. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's assertions. Yeah, there's no actual argument here um, very much. I mean, perhaps maybe the first is more of an argument, but yeah. Anyway, you want to comment, Nick, or do you want me to comment? Uh, I mean, looking at it first, the firstborn would often have special authority over those born after him. I I mean, again, often is a tell. When someone who's arguing for an airtight case has to essentially say, often, there's flexibility here. So first off. But though Adam, thus Adam is given the position of authority. And what I find interesting is he doesn't actually appeal to Genesis itself as making this point. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because that that's what they said they were going to do. Yep, that's a massive tell. And I'm like, look, if you can't point to a text where actually Genesis or Moses or whoever wrote Genesis is making this point, sorry, you're not actually establishing anything. Well, and that's the thing. They just said that... Um, they're going to show that Genesis 1 through 2, you know, I quote, Genesis 1 through 2 presents man and woman as equal in their essence as divine image bearers, but unequal in their social roles. He didn't actually show how Genesis does that. He just said that, well, Near Eastern thought um, more or less thinks that, or the people of the area thought that. And then number two, um, t- um, Paul way later does. That's not a case from the text. You know what's ironic about this? What? He's appealing to culture to explain it, and yet he gets very angry to egalitarians when we say culture in 1 Timothy 2. He can't have his cake and eat it too here. He yeah. can't criticize other people for doing the thing he's doing right now. Sorry, Denny. Sorry. You're, you're not allowed. You have to be consistent, and you're being inconsistent here. And Genesis doesn't give Adam's, quote, priority in creation as a reason for leadership. Genesis never uses the word leader. Uh, well, it says man and woman are supposed to rule. It does say that. Yep. Um, but anyway, um, here's here's what I would say um, to add to that. Um, there's actually a pattern in Scripture of God calling the second in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Ephraim, Joseph. Um, so not not the firstborn. Wasn't David like twelfth or something like that? Or Joseph 12th or something? Yeah, and the, the message is basically God knows the heart. It's not who you think it is. And, again, so it's it's not like, 
I guess you could almost say God has a pattern of choosing the second. Israel over Egypt. You yeah, know, yeah. and here's something else to think about, too. Um, uh, Gen- Galatians three twenty six through 29 says, All in Christ, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek, are all firstborn sons. Yep. So, not only in the Old Testament does God have a pattern of choosing the secondborn, perhaps to show that he is not like the surrounding cultures that think in that way. Um, he also indicates that everyone has the status of firstborn sons in, you know, the incarnation, in Christ. Um, and so, again, in the absence of any significance of firstborn son being spelled out in the narrative, and with all this pervasive pattern against it, um, I would say, you know, it's probably in the context of the text itself, so arguing from the Genesis text itself, in the narrative, it's to highlight Adam's loneliness and inability to fulfill his vocational call to rule and subdue the earth without his counterpart, um, who's also called to rule and subdue the earth. Mm-hmm. That's the most simplest, um, I would say, straightforward um, reading from the text. It doesn't require special pleading on male headship principles, which are notoriously vague, too. Yeah, and let's put it this way, too. Um there's there's an error in thinking, essentially they're reading, and I, I don't like this when biblical scholars do this. They look at the surrounding culture and they read it into the text, kind of what you were saying earlier, Nick. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, it's helpful to use biblical background to help you understand the text, but when you use biblical background and, uh, and background thought to decide what the text means in terms of its actual message, that gets into some, I think, very dangerous territory. Yeah, it's imprecise. Because, I mean, again, this is a pagan culture. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, it's, you can use that background to understand more of what the situation that the Bible is speaking into, but you have to be um, very open to the fact that the Bible is trying to speak against um, some of these notions as well. Yep. Um, and again, and we one of the big safeguards to this is you look for arguments within the text itself. You look to see what the narrative is trying to bring out, what mm-hmm. the narrative is highlighting. And that is what you decide to highlight and say is um, the importance of this or that. Yep. Um, something else, too. Um, there's um, not all um, the thought around the patriarchal. Not every, um, I guess, individual myth in the patriarchal. Um, world at the time um, saw this kind of made this connection. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, you've got the Mesopotamian creation story of I, I forget what it's called, Astrosis or something in the seventeenth. Astrosis, I think, is what it is. Yeah, seventeenth century BC. Um, you've got basically a similar culture to Hammurabi um, laws, and it's a similar story. Um, you, I think, there's even a flood story. Um, but essentially, um, when the woman the woman is mentioned into the narrative before the man. And when the two are mentioned together, she's named first. This is a patriarchal society. So all that to say, like, it doesn't necessarily give you, just by merely saying Adam was um, mentioned first in creation, does not necessarily mean, oh, okay, well, it supports all this hierarchical thought that we um, are going to actually, I mean, I feel comfortable saying that they insert in because yeah. the narrative itself um, explicitly says co-rule. Yep. Um, the narrative, it, the background doesn't necessitate their view. Um, 
And the narrative gives us reason to think that it's highlighting something other than what they're highlighting. So Burke is swinging a miss out of the five reasons he gives. And actually, I'm really shocked at how bad that one was. Yep. Number two will go later. Um, the designation of the woman as helper. Nick, do you want to read this one? Yeah. Third, and this is number three, God des designates the woman to be a helper to Adam. To this end, the woman alone will be suitable for the man. The word translated suitable comes from a Hebrew term indicating correspondence or complementarity, which, again, we would agree with. I said so earlier. Quote, unlike the newly created animals, none of whom correspond to Adam. Yeah, that's called bestiality. That's gross. The woman God formed from Adam's side, he gets that right, would complement him. It's like, okay, we agree with that. But she wouldn't be like Adam in every respect. Duh. Her unique calling would be to serve as his helper. Does The text doesn't say serve. Yeah, that's something he just, he, like... He keeps inserting these little buzzwords. He's yeah. basically virtue signaling without arguing. Uh, yeah. Now, the Hebrew term translated, and going back to Burke, the Hebrew term translated helper simply denotes one who offers help or assistance. That is very imprecise. Uh, so that's how he's getting out yep. of this. It, quote, Eve is called to come alongside Adam to assist him in the vocation God has given him to work and keep the garden. Never mind that whole Genesis 1 thing. Let's forget the context. This is all interpretation, by this the way. This is all interpretation. It's, there's no appeal to the text here. Yep. To be sure, helper is elsewhere used of God. Genesis 49.25, Exodus 18.4. No kidding. So it would be wrong to say the word always indicates a submissive role. Good on him for being intellectually honest. Well, and it dominantly does not. Yeah. Actually, there's not... Is there one instance where it it's a submissive role? He says there is. Where? Um, but since the word isn't only used of God, but although those who are helpers in a submissive role, but he cites passages, but actually doesn't show us what they say. So here we go. Let's, can we... Yeah, go for it. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The 32 kings who helped him? That's like military strength. That's not a subordinate role. Yep. Corresponding kings. Now, and this is First Chronicles 12.1. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. So more strong help in the military context. That's not subordinate. Second, uh, First. 12, 22 through 23. From day to day, men came to David to help him. Okay, until there was a great army, like an army of God. These were the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. So David's not even in charge because Saul's in charge, y'all. Sorry. Well, and you have all these men coming to help him overthrow a kingdom. That's yep. not subordination. That's talking about a military takeover. Yep. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son. Okay, fine. But again, this is still in the context of military or military power. Well, and here's interesting. All the leaders of Israel to help Solomon and his son. So you've got a prince um, needing the aid of leaders. Yep. So that's interesting. Yep. Second Chronicles 26.13 is the final text he cites. Under their command was an army of a big amount who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Again, military rule. So we've got military might, and we have um, several instances where you have corresponding leaders and kings. Um, that A lot of these, like, there's actually no sense of subordination in any of these examples. And mm -hmm. the dominant use uh, is actually of God, the helper of Israel. And in none of these is a woman mentioned. There's a difference between military con you know, stuff and marriage. We need to make this distinction. Well, that too, but... Anyway, yeah. like in this context, though, like the, the dominant use is actually for a superior to help um, someone that needs 
assistance. Yep. Um, but and then you've got some instances where you have more of a corresponding military strength. Yep. Um, that's required in order to um, get some sort of um, takeover or whatever it is. Or violent going. outcome or protection even. Yeah. Um, so continuing with Burke, the context of a passage must determine whether the helper in view is submitting to the one being helped. Again, he assumes subordination roles yeah. without defining even it. Even in those passages. Yeah, even in those passages. So he's just flat wrong here. He's got maybe one example that could go his way, but even that. So when he cites David Klein's, you you'd always have to kind of check yourself when you recognize that someone's citing someone who's on the far more progressive end of biblical scholarship. But anyway, David Klein's may be correct in contending that one that in one sense, even superiors become subordinates when they serve as helpers. <laughs> okay, now that's just kind of like reading back into it. So like, so, you know, it's given that, bias. well, okay, so given that all these, okay, the most examples are actually of a superior God helping an inferior, or, you know, people that are arguably on the same level in military might or needed in order to, you know, get to the same outcome. Oh, well, they're, they're just functioning as helpers. So now he's reading back the subordination implied in the English word back in and just saying, well, they're, they just, it just means that they're, the superiors are pretending like they're subordinates. To, it's like, wait, no, no. Well, that's not how we do basic exegesis. Anyway, no. He says, quote, they're subjecting themselves to a secondary subordinate's position that's actually never made clear in any of the texts. No. So he's assuming, again, all this sort of stuff. Yep. Quote, in order to assist one another, assist another. That's the key. They're assisting one another through military might, though they themselves may not actually be a subordinate. No kidding, dude. Like, They're not subordinate. I know. Yeah. In, I know. <laughs> in, that, in that sense, every helper function, functions as a subordinate in some sort. That is not true. That is not backed up by literally anything he has said. And I don't think he's, I don't, how do you write so much contradictory <laughs> stuff? Okay, so let's, okay, guys. So if you ever want to, I don't know, take over a small fortress or country, uh, make sure to tell all your allies, no matter how mighty they are, that they need to pretend to be your subordinates for a while so that they can help you take over. I'm just saying it, maybe it'll go well for you because they're going to be so, like, um, impressed, flattered yes. that you're telling them that they're going to be your subordinate. And for... in a manly culture like the ancient world, telling someone to bow down to you is a good way of getting them to like you. So in Genesis 2.18, Adam and Eve's roles, again, assuming roles, cannot be exchanged. Well, no kidding. Adam can't make babies. Like, duh. Eve's helping is orientated toward Adam's leadership, again, assuming all this, and thus highlights her submissive so role. So lots of assertion, basically. There's a lot of assertion here and reading. So essentially, like, how do we know that the term helper um, means subordinate? Well, here, here's a bunch of texts that don't actually say subordinate, but... You know what? You have to you have to think of these as um, examples where superiors or people on the same level act like subordinates, act like helpers. So again, it's a circular. It's really a circular if you, argument. If you squint really hard at my non-evidence, you might see it. It's like it's it's what it is is assuming what you want to prove is yep. what's happening here. It's yep. it's a classic circular argument. Yep. Also, like again, from the Genesis text itself, which they went over. Um, correspondence language is given. So again, like they gave very weak um, translations of either, which we gave a few other ones mm -hmm. um, that did not involve the English word uh, denoting subordination because the word itself doesn't and the context doesn't. Yep. 
Well, on top of that, again, we have the actual correspondence language used in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say it again because it's I want it to be a little nauseating. Like it actually says co it actually talks about co-rule. Yep. So those two things, um, the language of correspondence or face to face, you know, also actually guards against the interpretation that maybe Eve is like God um, in terms of being a superior who's reaching down to help Adam out of his stoop. Um, it's, again, more the language of, again, coming alongside um, face to face rather yep. than um, stooping down. So, yep. Yep. So hooray for context in the text. <laughs> yep. All right. So number four. Fourth, Adam names Eve. What do you think? After God, uh, it says the man's naming of the woman. Oh, that's his actual argument. Okay. After God fashions her from his side, Adam responds with poetry. Wait, where are you? Number four. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At the end of the poem, Adam names this new creation God has given him. That Adam would name her is significant in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, for the one who names is the one who leads. Okay. In Genesis 1, God exercises his own rule by naming. He calls the light day and the darkness night and the sky heaven and the dry earth land. He then entrusts to Adam the authority to name the animals. That's not necessarily authority, but all right. Well, and that's, again, that's something drawn from the text. Yep. Um, and I mean, you can perhaps make a case there, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just going to say that's not um, exactly how the text um yep. Yeah. yeah, then he reads Genesis 2, 19 through, 19 through 20, and quote, In naming the animals, Adam exercised his authority as vice-regent over God's creation. Sure, because Eve wasn't created yet. He's yeah. allowed to do that. That doesn't imply anything. Yeah. Likewise, when Adam called her, called her woman, and later Eve, okay, so woman is not her name, so apparently she's got two names now, he was exercising a leadership role God gave to him alone. As Klein observes, the name of the woman by the man on both occasions, I conclude, signifies his authority over her. Again, nothing in the text actually says this, and he called her woman, which literally just is man with a feminine ending. Of course, of course, I mean, Allison, can we name our daughter woman? Uh, let's not. Let's not, yeah. And so, basically, he names her, he actually, actually names her Eve after the fall, which is something Burke doesn't actually comment on, even though he does cite the verse. So, it's like, he names her Eve after the fall has happened. So he's being a little sneaky with his exegesis here. Yeah, so again, um, woman is not a name. Um, so you remember when I um, when I was talking about earlier how um, Adam came from um, Adama, um, the earth, and again, that's Adam with a feminine ending. So Adama, mm -hmm. and then Adam, Adam. Um, so uh, man is Ish, um, woman is Isha. It's just man with a feminine ending. Okay, so this isn't actually like a conventional name. This is a, um, I guess you could say he's recognizing gender distinction here is really what's going, what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, he sees another that is like him. So he's Ish and goes, oh, Isha. You know, this is a, this is another one that's like me. Yep, same but different. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, you're, you're another human. <laughs> what, what do you know? But you're, you're female. Um, and I think more the point here is he isn't lonely enough anymore. Like he, I mean, he, he probably wasn't stupid as he was naming the animals, saying that some animals had parts that resembled his and some had another one, mm -hmm. but he didn't really find one that looked like him at all um he's probably starting to wonder what's going on 
um, and feeling a little left out. Um, and then he sees, you know, he sees yeah. someone like him that is like him is not the same as him. And like him does not imply she is under him. Yeah. You have to look everything Burke is saying. You have to assume basic premises that the scriptures do not give you. And I'm here's, sorry. here's the other big thing. Um, and Je- there is no Hebrew naming formula here. There is when he names um, her Eve later, after the fall. There is no Hebrew naming formula here. It's just, this is the formula. You say, to call, you put a name, Shem, Shem, and, uh, sorry, you put name, so to call, name, Shem, and then a proper name. We don't have Shem. We don't have a proper name. We just have the verb to call. That, that's what we have. We yep. don't we don't have the other two components yet. Yep. You know, so again, there's no Hebrew naming formula here. This is not um, Adam naming Eve like he does the animals. That's that's not occurring. There's no name here. Yep. Um, and actually, he himself um, he doesn't he do, Adam doesn't become a proper name until later. Like right now, he's he's a he's a human. Yep. But now he sees another one, and now he's differentiated. Um, so now there's not the human, there's there's two of them. <laughs> yep, the humans. Yeah. And it's significant, I'm really mad he he didn't make this point. He he actually, he truly names her Eve after the fall, after everything bad has happened. And it's just kind of like, dude, that's so significant to the literary genre, like just conventions of what Genesis is yeah. all about. And the fact that he doesn't, I'm like, dude, like, you really want this thing to be true. And I'm sorry, this is just not working. And the fact that he has to say he was exerting a leadership role God gave to him alone. And I'm like, really? Where's, again, I just go back to it. And I'm sorry, this sounds like a broken record. Where in the text does the text make this obvious? And there's nothing in the text that makes this obvious. It's all whispers of patriarchalism that someone wants to be true. Yeah. And yeah. So those are the three out of the five of Burke's assertions. You can't really call them arguments. They're assertions. Yeah. They're mostly assertions. Um, we had a circular argument earlier. Um, and you'll notice again, none of this is really arguing. Most of this is not arguing from the text. I would say the closest thing that we've had so far as an argument from the text itself would be this last one. Um, cause at least he's trying to appeal to other portions within the narrative itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, again, overlooking some very huge, I, I would say basic, basic things. Yeah. What I find funny too, is he calls the, you know, he cites the, the he called light day and darkness and he does that throughout. And I'm like, do these things have authority over each other? Like the, the, the contrast, male, female, light, dark, land. It's like, those are different things, but neither of them have any ontic Sort of subordination kind of stuff. I wish you guys could. I, I got distracted. I, I wish you guys could see this. Um, our kitty cat was looking at us. He does this like derp move where he like um, strains his head backwards or to the side. Looks at you upside down. Kind of thing. He likes to look at us upside down. Oh my gosh. He finds it incredible. Melt my heart. Yep. And so <laughs> back to the text. Basically in conclusion. Okay. In conclusion. We have two more points. We'll go through uh, Burke's article. But Everything we read in the text, everything that we drew from the text is based on the text. Uh, Burke's argumentation is similar to Ray Ortland's argumentation where there's very little actual, here's how the text proves my point. It's all essentially, here's how, and this is, it's all essentially how I feel or what I want the text to say. A lot of it is, so a lot of it's very interesting in that um, 
it's more like he re- they retell the narrative. And yep. so I think if you're used to being retold the narrative one way, as you read it, you're automatically starting to infer things that perhaps the text itself doesn't really say. Yeah, it's it's like uh, when, I, I mean, Ray Ortland does the same thing. He retells the story of it. And I'm sitting there going like, I'd rather just read God's holy word than your, your attempt at making, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, like this sort of thing. If you just read the Bible for yourself on this, I'm very, very rarely do I say just read the Bible. But reading like the Common English Bible or the or a basic English translation that doesn't clearly doesn't have a complementary bias or even if it's just neutral, you'll read it and you'll be like, if you're not looking for the answer to a really bad question and you're just going to the text with good questions, it's very difficult to get anywhere where Burke or Ortland do. Yeah, and I would say too, you never just read the Bible. You oh, yeah. come with your own um, biases, um, your own culture, and all those things. And I don't think those things have to be bad. Um, the question is more, can you engage another? Can you engage, in this case, the world of the text? Mm-hmm. Can you, um, I guess, approach the text in all your own like particularity and uniqueness, mm-hmm. um, right or wrong, um, hear back from the text, and perhaps correct your own misconceptions? Yeah. Um, so I think it's rather than pretending one approaches the text as a, um, I don't know, neutral... Um, objective person, it's best to realize that you are a person and, you know, God didn't make us like objective robots. Um, We're we're people that interpret and contextualize and to acknowledge that and just be willing, again, to hear the text out too. Because again, it's when you, when you speak to anyone, really, you can't just read into what they say. People do it all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of misunderstandings come from. Um, but, you know, approach approach it, you know, as though you would another person where you have to actually hear what they say and try to evaluate it mm-hmm. um, against what you think. And sometimes, and again, this is an authoritative um, word of God. So sometimes you got to adjust what you think going in. Yeah. And it's like I teach two Bible or teach one Bible study at church. And when someone asks me a question about the text, I read the text again. Mm-hmm. you know out loud oh, so what does that what does that mean well let's read it again and then ask the question again yeah. let's go back to the text let's let the text say what the text says if the text has any authority or sway over our lives you need to be immersed in it and just i went back and i re-read genesis today while i was watching the leafs almost lose and finally win in overtime uh i went back and reread genesis i'm like is there something i'm missing is there i mean am i seeing only what i want to see and stuff like that and i came out of it going like no like it just yeah and so it's one of those where yeah we're not blank slates you know it's not like we can just read the text and ding you know we're not mystics or gnostics or anything like that but most people are willing to concede genesis is egalitarian it's where they get hung up on paul and how paul reads it or misreads it according to some scholars and you kind of go if genesis is egalitarian as we've shown that it is from the text itself then you have to go, okay, if it's at the beginning it was so, then how does it work through the rest of Scripture? And again, egalitarian being a later construction of course. Um, that we're saying the text um, corresponds to and gave birth to. Yep. Um, so, you know, putting that out of the way. but For sure. Yeah. Also, um, that's why we actually went through First Timothy and then the New Testament first. Yep. Um, I just find that people cannot get past or listen to anything else that is said until we cover those things. Yep. And so that's why we went there. We tried to do that um, towards the beginning because 
Um, that way you don't just keep thinking, well, what about First Timothy? It's like, all right, well, you know, if for some reason you have not, you're distracted and can't, you know, hear anything else, then go to our First Timothy section and then you'll know what we yep. vaguely think about First Timothy. Yep. You know, in an hour or something like that. So, uh, in summation, what are we doing uh, next time? Well, um, if I actually record um, my talk, um, you'll hear a bit about um, a, the a new theology on abuse, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see if I can get that done. Otherwise, um, either next time or um, time after, we will be doing the next part of Genesis. Which is... The fall. Yep, the fun fall. And so thank you for coming, you know, sticking with us. This has been an hour and a half. We did not realize it would go that long. <sighs> Allison needs a drink after this. Forget that snacking thing. That's really dumb. But thank you again for sticking it out. And apologies again on the delay. Johnny Walker for me. All right. All right. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye, Mike. Bye, Mike. Drink coffee.